Hi, and welcome to Measure to Metric, a podcast about engineering monuments, people who built them, and the people who use them. My name is Vivian Yu. And my name is John Julius. I'm a civil engineer. I'm married to a civil engineer. And every episode, we're going to pick one engineering monument. Maybe it's ancient, or maybe it's brand new from somewhere in the world. We're going to tell you what it is, who built it, when it was built, why it was built. We're going to tell you where it was built. We're going to go into detail on all of these things and more. That's right. This week, we're talking about the Port of Buenos Aires. Port of Buenos Aires. Interesting. This is the first I'm hearing of this. I usually at least know what we're discussing, but this (laughs) week I'm like way off, way out. So Buenos Aires, John, you know where it is? Buenos Aires is in Argentina. That's right. It's the capital of Argentina. So the port was built in 1897, and it took roughly 13 years. Buenos Aires just had a lot of bad luck, it sounds like, as I was researching this. It was just a string of bad luck one after the other. Okay. It was built as a state-run dock complex. Okay. And it took a long time to build, and it basically was the first, there was an initial dock and it took so long to build that it basically was not usable by the time it was completed because ships had outgrown the size of this dock. And so they built additional docks in the vicinity. And so the port of Buenos Aires is is more like a series of connected or semi-connected docks in and around the capital city. Interesting. The port handles 11.7 million tons of cargo every year. Not bad. It's quite a lot. And like I said, they added new docks. So in 1911, the dock sued, or the southern dock, I suppose, was added to the south of the city, handling another 17 million tons of cargo. Oof. feel like there's a your mama joke there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to make it. I can't make it either. I don't know. <laughs> You you do it in your head. Choose, <laughs> choose your own, your mama joke. <laughs> <laughs> so at the time that this was built, and this would have been early 20th century, there was a lot more demand for passenger transportation. Right. Because airplanes weren't really a viable mode of transportation for most people yet. Yeah, they were not yet a going concern. No. So... Ship travel was still the main way of getting around the world. And so the port did handle quite a lot of passenger transportation, especially because there was a really significant immigration influx to Argentina around 1930. Okay. So I don't know if you know too much about Argentina, but it is a very culturally diverse place in terms of the different people of European descent. (laughs) Yeah. So there's a significant Italian population, I believe. Mm -hmm. Um, And just, yeah, very different European heritage in Argentina. Interesting. There's obviously less passenger transportation now that docks at the Port of Buenos Aires, but it still services a lot of cruise ships Mm. and tourism ferry services. Interesting. 
So that's kind of the overview of the port. There's not a whole lot to talk about there. It's a series of ports. The old port has also been revitalized as a new urban area. So I'll go more into that a bit later. Okay. But this was actually a requested topic from a few weeks ago, perhaps a few months ago. It was a a while back. (laughs) A little bit behind. But this was brought up by one of our listeners, and I started looking into it, and it was quite interesting. So here we go. Excellent. So Buenos Aires was originally established as a port city in 1580 by the Spanish. Okay. What you usually did back then was to establish a port, you would try to find natural area that would be conducive to it. So it would be obviously a land area that's close to water. It would have a natural kind of low bottom to it that would allow your ships to moor. Yep. And it would hopefully be a little bit protected from the waves. So it might have some natural features like a piece of land that may have jut out or a little bit of an aisle, something that would have protected the area and protected the ships that were moored there. Cool. That makes sense. So Buenos Aires, the natural area at the time, it was quite shallow. So ships had to be moored a little bit of way off the shore, and then people and goods were then transferred to smaller ships to get to the shore. Okay. Now, this is quite annoying overall. The area was also very swampy. Mm -hmm. And as the tides come and go, you would have some times of the day where you could get to your ships easily and sometimes where you couldn't. So it's a little bit up to the time of day and time of the weather, obviously. It just wasn't super reliable. Mm. So in 1868, the Argentine Congress commissioned some technical studies to try to find a place for a more modern port to support more modern trade. And there was a lot of political drama about taxation and land acquisition and who owns what for the next three years. I really did not dive deep into this one because yeah. <laughs> diving into the politics of what gets something built is my daily nightmare. I cannot. Yeah. No, that that makes sense. And then especially, <laughs> yeah. I I don't blame you for that. All that being said, there was a lot of drama there, and they didn't do anything for about three years. Right. So about three, four years later, Argentina built a pier that stretched into the water so that at least smaller ships can kind of approach that pier and dock there and transfer things in. Okay. You see this a lot around the world. A lot of ports would have piers. They're usually more tourist destinations now. You can kind of walk out. It'll be a boardwalk. Quite nice. Yeah, it's like one of my favorite favorite things. You go and you walk like way out and it's it's just nice. Yeah. You're kind of in the middle of the ocean. It's quite nice. Yep. But this was obviously just a Band-Aid solution. You still couldn't get some of the larger ships out there and it wasn't very good in terms of transporting the goods because it was still a fairly narrow strip of platform that you've built. Right. In 1884, Sir John Hawkshaw started designing a major four-dock complex. So he was actually a former ICE president, so Institute of Civil Engineer in the UK. Mm -hmm. And 
the first of these four docks was completed in 1888. So roughly four years. So they finished one dock. Great. He designed four for very good reason, which is that demand obviously required it. Yeah. So the first one was done in 1888. Two years later, the panic hit. Okay. All right. So as I'm researching this, it just said, and two years later, the panic hit. And so nothing happened as though the panic was something that we should all know about. Yeah. And I did not know about it. Did you know about it? I did not know about it. So let me tell you about the panic. The panic was a huge debt crisis. One of the banks in London, the Barings Bank, which doesn't even exist anymore, was facing bankruptcy because it was taking on a lot of risk on poor investments in Argentina. Okay. So very similar to the housing crisis that the U.S. faced in 2008. Yeah. It's what it sounded like to me. It was, yeah. it was facing bankruptcy because of poor risk profiles and decisions. And Argentina was facing a severe recession. So this bank that was basically holding Argentina's economy together lost trust or lost, I don't know. I'm not an economist. Yeah, it went bad. It did a bad thing. Yes. Yeah. So things went bad. But we all know what happened in the housing crisis in the end was that the government bailed them out. Yes. So in the same vein of thought, a bunch of international banks and rich people, including the Rothschilds, created a fund to guarantee the Barings Bank's debt, therefore averting a larger depression. Okay. And this is all... If there's nothing else, reading about the panic affirmed my belief that big banks and rich people and rich organizations and industries will never actually fail because rich people will always bail each other out. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Even just like looking at the disparity of like how much of the current, like the COVID bailout and stimulus packages. And it's like... Oh, oh, I see. So, yeah. We can't fix poverty. Like, poverty is too big for us to fix. But we can bail out rich people. Yeah. You know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look at how quickly when Notre Dame Cathedral went up in flames. Yeah. Right? It it took, what, 24 hours to raise, like, a billion (laughs) dollars? It's just like, oh, oh, you're saying that we could do this. We just choose not to. Rich people helping rich people. It's a weird, a heartwarming story for some hearts, yeah. you know? And, and then acting like the poor people should be grateful, right? <laughs> well, we, we saved this bank and, and you should be grateful because your, your country would have gone into a depression. It's just like, I'm already poor. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> wow, you saved me from, I mean, no, I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't make light of that. Being poor in a bad economy is is worse than being poor in a good economy, probably. Sure. But the point is that it's... <laughs> rich people are more inclined to help rich people. Yeah. So, yes, the panic was a panic, but not a depression. So gotcha. it resolved itself. But nevertheless, it slowed down the progress of the port a lot. And therefore, it didn't finish the remainder of the four ports until 1897, okay? Okay. So started in 
1884, finished in 1897, 13 years. Yep. Ten years later, by 1907, it had reached capacity. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's taken way too freaking long. And also, a port is built based on the ships kind of at the time. And you may be future-proof for a little bit. But how wide your channels are, how deep they are. Mm-hmm. I mean... The turn of the century was a time where progress moved very quickly, Yeah. right? This was also the time when the Panama Canal was built, if you remember. Mm-hmm. So you're getting a lot of ship movement and trade via ships. Yeah. Well, of course, because we didn't have planes yet. <laughs> I mean, to this day, a lot of freight goes by by boat. Oh, yeah, of course. It makes perfect sense. If, if something isn't time sensitive, then it's you can get more costs less money. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm not I'm not anti-boat. <laughs> Who's anti-boat? I don't know. Somebody could be. <laughs> right. So in 1907 it had reached capacity, so they authorized an expansion. Fine. Uh 1911. So 4 years later there were plans for a bunch of docks to be approved, but what happened by 1911-ish time? 1911 would be World War One. That's right. Yeah. So things were delayed again. Of course. And it would take another 15 years to finish anything. <laughs> <laughs> the Newport was finally finished in 1926. And this is the one that's really the mainstay of the port of Buenos Aires. Okay. So that's what we're really talking about. I think it's called Porto Nueves, New, New, Newport. Newport, gotcha. I don't speak Spanish, guys. I barely speak French, so. (laughs) I speak neither Spanish nor French. (laughs) Right, so like I said, just a series of bad luck. Yeah. And bad timing. Right. And there's something to be said about just doing things quickly, especially in infrastructure that's so dependent on economies, dependent on political climate. There's a lot to be said about just like cracking on with it. So I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the overall science of port engineering. Oh, okay. I wasn't aware that there was such a thing. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, everything that's built has to be engineered, John. That's no, 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 no. I why get it. we have this I get podcast. It. I just I just think like when I when I think of like a port, I just think of you've gotta have, you know, a way to get the boxes on and off the ship. And that's it. And that's it. That's that's it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Enlighten me. Support engineering is a very multidisciplinary stream of construction. You've got naval architecture that you need to consider, the hydrodynamics of the ship as it navigates through your port the basins and the channels that you need to design so that the ships can dock and go through. Yeah. And it's kind of like designing a parking lot for ships in a way. Right. And there are inlets and drainage that you need to consider. So the way that the water flows through your port and how quickly it flows to the which direction, because of course you don't want your port to erode away. So as the waves come in, you want to make sure that it doesn't erode your shoreline, but also that if it's 
coming in and out with the tide that it's not dropping a bunch of sediment where you don't want it to because sediment at the bottom of your channels and basins means you have to keep dredging it so that you maintain yeah. the same depth so that your ships can keep coming in. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, all right. You've convinced me. <laughs> There's obviously geotechnical issues. There's always geotechnical issues. Yeah. But when you're talking about a swampy area and you're building docks and, you know, A port with docks is not a natural coastline, right? A natural coastline could be a beach, it could be a cliff, but when you want something that is easy to access for a ship, you're building a a straight edge. Okay. Sometimes you're filling in water, sometimes you're cutting back land. One or the other, you're going to run into geotechnical issues in some way to reinforce that. Yeah. There are some things you're going to need to waterproof. There are some things you won't. Gotcha. There are breakwaters. So breakwaters are things that you might build kind of outside of the port a little bit into the water so that you can break the waves and therefore protect your coast from the erosion of the waves. Okay. There are piers and terminals. So really the planning of the area and how, like planning out the parking spots kind Mm of, of each boat. There's the logistics of loading and unloading, obviously. So then you're getting onto the land sides of things, hydraulics of cranes, how they get moved around. Are they computerized? How do you keep records of that? Security, CCTV, electronics. Yeah, so CCTV probably less so at the time it was built, but that's now. (laughs) Okay, gotcha. But some amount of logistics control, whether it's a guy, you know, jotting down notes all day and then relaying it back to a central office or it's computerized and logged and weighed yeah and then moved out yeah there's the land planning and the navigation around so when the cargo comes onto the onto the land what happens to it then how does it get connected to the rest of where it needs to go how does it get connected Inland. So the Port of Buenos Aires is the gateway for the rest of Argentina in terms of freight and trade. It handles so much cargo, but how does it go from this one city Mm -hmm. to the rest of the country? Interesting. So, and I'm guessing that you're going to say trains? It's it's always trains, guys. It's always trains. It's trains. No, actually, it's not only trains. There is a pretty significant highway system and network that is built in Buenos Aires and in Argentina. I'll go into that a little bit more later because I can't help but look into trains if it's relevant. Sure. So, right. Very multidisciplinary, very all-encompassing, high-level, really need to get your head around the different processes, where things are coming from and how it's going to the next place. Sure. Different cargo will also have different requirements. So if you're shipping something like oil, it's going to have very specific requirements in terms of handling Mm -hmm. and how it gets loaded and unloaded. Yep. Very different from passengers. If you have passengers being docked. Sure. You can't handle them like oil. (laughs) No. Although, I mean, they'd probably enjoy it. (laughs) What? Here's just, you know, here's a tank, slosh around. (laughs) Uh, Right. In old styles of building ports, it's typically you would build a long stretch 
It's called a key, okay. right? Yep. And it would be a long stretch of land that the ships can dock against. So you basically need to give them a line yeah. to go up against. Okay. And you see this a lot everywhere. Yeah. Toronto, we have Queen's Key. I don't know that ships ever actually docked there. Maybe. Well, I don't know. They must have. If it's, if it's called a key, <laughs> then they must have done it. You right. Know. The original port design for the Port of Buenos Aires was basically two pieces of land with a channel, a long channel in between, and there would be areas for boats to dock on either side of this channel. Right. That obviously is a constraint for how big of a boat you can pull through there Mm -hmm. and how many you can have through there at the same time. It's a channel between two land areas, so it's also probably quite shallow. You would have to dig it out or dredge it out often to increase the size of ships that you can pull through there. Hmm. There's also a lot of dust and noise that is associated with port operations. Sure. So in the handling of cargo, loading and unloading it. And this leads to land buffers that are usually associated around ports. So you can see an actual live port that's operational now. It's not usually mingled in with residential areas or commercial areas. Yeah. It tends to be separated. And so this caused a lot of issues for the Port of Buenos Aires when the original old port became just unusable because the ships had outgrown it. But then it was also so isolated from everything else that it was such a challenge to revitalize any part of that land without doing the whole thing and bringing in and adding the connections from the main urban area from the rest of the city. Yeah. And so a lot of old ports now that are being revitalized. So I don't know if you remember, but when we were in Melbourne, yeah, right? So the river, that open part of the river where we were kind of staying, it had a old port area and it was being revitalized. But it took a long time and it's a concerted effort, right? Yeah. It takes, you have to bring in services. You have to bring in the businesses. Yeah. There's just a lot that goes into revitalizing this type of unclaimed land, I suppose. Yeah. And and then also I would imagine that before you start revitalizing it, there has to be like the property value yeah. potential and the all demand, that. Yeah. Really. Exactly. Exactly. That's what happened in Melbourne is that it was it's an expensive city to live. They needed more land. So they yeah. went ahead with it. Yeah. Old ports generally serviced smaller vessels, but larger vessels became more common. And so if you look at places like New York or Portland, their ports actually became landlocked. Even though it was still accessible by water, it just wasn't deep enough water. So it was essentially landlocked. Yeah, It was too expensive to maintain and to expand to service large ships. So a lot of them do become decrepit or abandoned. Only the lucky ones get overhauled, turned into <laughs> boutique apartments. Boutique apartments, that's true, yeah. I mean, even our Portlands here in Toronto is going through the process of getting revitalized, but it takes a long time, mm-hmm. right? So if we were to look at the example of Toronto in the Portlands, right now the biggest concern is how do you actually get out there, right? It's so close to downtown. hmm 
But there's nothing taking there's, you out there, yeah. Nothing. You can't even take the streetcar out there. It's very inaccessible. So one of the first plans is to build a light rail yeah. service or subway service hmm. that would go to the Portlands. And until you do that, there's no point building any condos out there. You can't get there. Yeah. And people yeah. downtown, that close to downtown, like the type of people you're trying to attract to go there are not going to drive. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So the mechanical engineering of figuring out where cranes go and how to install them and how big they should be to carry out what type of cargo, all the pneumatic systems and the hydraulics, that all has to go into the design and operations of the port. There's also dredging machines and automatic pumps used to make sure that areas that are inundated all the time are pumped out to be dry as necessary. The planning of a port includes the logistics and how long a ship takes to get in, get unloaded, get reloaded, and then go back out. Mm -hmm. And that really is going to determine how efficient your port is going to be. Right. So that can get all backed up, right? You can have cargo that can be unloaded and loaded very quickly. But if you can unload too quickly and you don't have anywhere to put that cargo, then you can't actually unload it. So if your system of transporting that stuff, either by train or highways, by trucks, is not matching the logistics of your port, then your port's efficiency is going to suffer. Interesting. Okay. And that's where, yeah, you have to have not only the infrastructure to handle that, but also the logistics to... Plan it it all the way out. Yeah. That's crazy. Ports are also just environmentally problematic. Yeah. At times, they could cause a lot of pollution if it's not handled properly. Mm Mm-hmm the impact it has on the ocean floor or the sea floor that it exists in is not usually great. (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine that. So, yeah, port engineering, a very complex, multidisciplinary topic. Yeah. It's not really taught. It's more of a learned, acquired trade. Like, you really need to specialize in it. Right. Which kind of makes sense because it's multidisciplinary. It's it's not like there's things that you only need to know if you're developing a port. You just have to know a lot of different things. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So the Buenos Aires port was a wet dock. Okay. It didn't drain and then unload. It was wet, so the ships would stay afloat. Yeah. But the water level was actually controlled by locks. Oh. On either side of the channel. Well, there you go. Your favorite thing. We're back to locks. Yeah. I'm so glad we explained locks in our very first episode. If you guys don't know what locks are in this context, please go back. Panama Canal episode. Yeah. We talk endlessly about it. And also, if you just want to know what it is without having to go listen to another <laughs> hour-long episode, it's a boat elevator. <laughs> It's, it's a way of locking off water and, and keeping a large amount of water in or out of a specific place. That's right. Yeah. Either a chamber or a series of chamber that lets water in or out 
so that you get a specific water level within your channel. And it's kind of like a dam, but it also lets water get released and lets boats travel through. So that's kind of the difference between a dam and a lock, in my opinion. Makes sense. So the lock itself is 20 meters wide. Okay. So that's kind of the size of the boat that you can get through there, 20 meters wide. Yeah, you got a 21-meter boat, you're in some trouble. (laughs) The dock is built parallel to the coast with locks on either end. Okay. The channel in between is there for the flow of the ships, and it's lined with granite because it's hard and sturdy. Also luxurious. (laughs) The granite was also used to construct the lock walls. So the locks themselves are also made of granite. Hey, there you go. And they built a series of wood dams or coffer dams around the site area during construction so that the workers can build the structures in dry condition. And I was talking recently with a friend about this. I've never been inside a coffer dam. I only know what it is. So a coffer dam, in essence, is when you need to build something in water— but you don't want to work underwater. Yep. You would build a wood wall, like a temporary wall around the area, a temporary dam, so that you could keep it dry. Mm-hmm. And then you would be kind of on the seafloor working. Yeah. But what I hadn't realized, and my friend told me about this, was that he had been at the bottom of a construction site behind a coffer dam before. And it's so surreal to see, like, ocean, yeah, you know, above your head, just, like, going by you, <sighs> right? So usually we're doing this in rivers or somewhere where it's fairly fast-flowing. Yeah. And it's just whooshing by, like, maybe a meter, two meter, ten meters above your head, just, like, going by, and you're protected behind this dam working at the seafloor where wow. it's dry. And so I had never been in a coffer dam, but like I can imagine that would be that would be very weird. Like yeah. it would take a while to get used to. Yeah. <laughs> you can know that it's safe, but at the same time you're like, is it though? <laughs> yeah. I mean I How much do uh, I trust temporary structures? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. That's like a whole thing with me. It takes me like 10 minutes before I can actually inhale like when I'm snorkeling. So I'm like, I've got a whole different issue with trusting my equipment (laughs) so it's kind of like when you go to the aquarium and you're in that tunnel underneath the shark tank yeah yeah this doesn't it's not glass it's not permanent it's (laughs) (laughs) it's just a dam that's right next to you yeah and if it fails or if the water level suddenly rises if there's a storm obviously that's gonna yeah go over problems so anyway Very, very surreal. Wow. So a series of cofferdams to construct the dock itself. And because the dock is essentially a long, wide channel, they recently, well, more recent than the dock itself, but they built a rotating suspension bridge that's Real fancy looking. Nice. And we'll post some picture on this. It's the Puente de la Muje. 
I don't know how to say that. M-U-J-E-R. Okay. Puente de la Mujer. I don't know. Sure. There we go. And it's an asymmetric cantilever spar cable stayed bridge. Wow. Which is some architectural BS, if you ask me. Like, that tells me nothing. Yeah. And it was designed by an architect. Of course. Naturally. Yeah. Because if an engineer designed this thing, it would have been a few piers and a flat bar across. It would have looked like the symbol pie. Sure. But it doesn't. It looks like, and this is how the architect described its inspiration and its background. A synthesis of the image of a couple dancing the tango. Okay. Well, there you go. Let me explain why it looks like this, right? So it's this bridge that goes over the dock, which means ships still have to pass. Yeah. So this bridge rotates and pivots around one of its piers. Okay. That's right. It's normally perpendicular to the to the channel, right? So you can cross it. Yeah. But when it pivots, it becomes parallel so that boats can go through. Right. So it goes from across the channel to running down the channel. That's right. For, for those of us that forget what perpendicular means <laughs> on a regular basis. Do you? Well, look, I don't know. It, it, goes, it crosses the channel and then it rotates so that the bridge goes lengthwise down the channel so that That's boats correct. can go by. Perpendicular. It's like 14 letters. Give me a break. 13. It's too many. So this bridge has two supports that are in the water, and it pivots around one of them. So it looks like, I can imagine that's the intent. It looks like two people, mm-hmm. right? Those are the two piers. Yeah. And then the one person twirls like in a tango because it pivots. Uh, and it also is not just flat. It has a arm that goes up like a triangle from that pier. So it looks like a suspension bridge, except it's only from one side, hence the asymmetric cabled state part. I see. So imagine like a slice of pizza. Uh-huh. And there's a flat edge across the water, and that's the bridge part. And then there's the other side of the pizza that goes up in an angle. Yeah. Right? So that whole slice of pizza rotates about the pier. Interesting. Hence, the synthesis of the image of a couple dancing the tango. Sure. Use your imagination. I think it works. It also works if you imagine it as a swirling slice of pizza. You're welcome. Okay. There you go. And it is called also the woman's bridge. Okay. Because a lot of the streets in the district that it connects have women's names. Right. Okay. There you go. Sally Street. And, Sally uh, Street. <laughs> Mary's Lane. Yeah. Belinda Avenue. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> if you live on Belinda Avenue, please write to us. Yeah. <laughs> this bridge was built between 1999 and 2001. Quite a fancy-looking thing. Okay. And it still rotates now, so ships can pass through the channel. Yeah. So today, the Port of Buenos Aires is the main container port of the country. It handles 85% of the nation's containers. Ooh, 
that's pretty good. And there's always major improvements and investments put in to create better connectivity in terms of freight and allow the movement of cargo. Yeah. So this is via railways and road infrastructure. So currently there are 37,000 kilometers of railway network in Argentina, which is quite significant. Good. Yeah, that's not bad. But most of it is old mm-hmm. and in poor condition. So only 18,000 kilometers of it are operational. So just under half. Yeah, but real close to half. Real close to half. Like, I would be curious what, you know, what's the usable rail that's actually still maintained in Canada? That's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. 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 We do have some abandoned railway right of way. But I think one of the conversations that's been going around in the railway industry is definitely how do we repurpose old railway corridors, whether it's to improve it and update it so that it could be railway again, or to repurpose it for green space Mm -hmm. or trails, cycle trails. Yeah, there you go. Because a lot of it is just overgrown and abandoned. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, trust me. I I have stood on some real lousy train tracks (laughs) drinking beer or whatever, and it's just like... Oh, my goodness. You know for a fact. No, because there's... Train time is any time. No, because these are not real train tracks. These are like, you're up to your knees in grass, and it's just like any train that comes through here is, is a real dumb train. Put it that way. So anyhow, I think in my mind, if if almost 50% of your train tracks are still in good shape, you're doing okay. Well, so there's definitely investment both in improving and widening highways so that there's more capacity for trucks mm-hmm. and also to improve the condition of the railway network. Hmm. There's also river canals that connect Buenos Aires to cities, but they require a lot more maintenance. They're more difficult to manage. And overall, it's just not the ideal way of transporting. They also don't tend to be, like canals don't tend to be the most environmentally friendly way of transport. It's very unpredictable because it is so dependent on weather as Mm. well. Mm -hmm. So not ideal. And I talked about the original port of Buenos Aires being kind of outdated almost immediately as soon as it was built. Yep. So this was Puerto Madero. And it has since become one of the trendiest boroughs of Buenos Aires. Nice. So the original port was abandoned pretty much like within a decade after construction because it took so long. And since the new port was constructed in 1911, there was just no need to keep the old one. Right. And it kind of sat abandoned until the 90s. Ah, as as many things did. As many things did, which led a effort to urbanize 170 hectares of land. Right. So one hectare is 10,000 square kilometers, 170 hectares. Yeah. land here. And this was done over four phases. So what I described before, the first phase was to repurpose some of the existing buildings. They didn't want to tear it all down. There's a lot of character to these old buildings. 
And they're kind of cool, like, you know, brick and historic. So they tried to repurpose a lot of these warehouses and turn them into restaurants and cafes. Mm. The second phase was for overall master planning. Before you can revitalize the area, you really got to figure out the logistics of how this land is going to function. What are you going to have there? How are you going to zone it? Yeah. Because you're going to rezone the whole thing. So that was the second phase. And the third phase, which was when we finally put shovels in the ground, was to build the public works. Right. You need to build the services, the water, the drainage, the electricity, and the roads, obviously. Mm. Maybe you need to build trains. Maybe you need to build streetcars. Maybe you need to build transit. Yeah. Whatever it is. Maybe you got to build trains. Maybe you got to build what trains. what getting at here. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally, the fourth phase was to pull it all together, the master planning and the services that you've now got done, and built the high-rises, built the restaurants, built the actual neighborhoods that's going to bring this place to life. Yes. And again, it suffered a lot of delays. Of course. Because it was started in the 90s in the planning, but of course we had a series of oil downturns in the 90s. And then in the late 2000s, there was also the recession. So it took a long time for everything to get done. Right. It was finally completed in 2010. And the land was sold for development throughout each phase. So the government basically raised the capital to do these works by selling pieces of it as they went along. Right. Which meant that if you were an investor and you got in early, you were able to buy that land for dirt cheap. And then by the time it was done revitalizing, what, 10, 20 years later, you were able to sell it for quite a profit because the property value, of course, skyrocketed. The port was very close to the downtown of Buenos Aires. Yeah. And it was revitalized as a mixed-use but also residential area. Hmm. Interesting. So investors were able to double their investments very easily. Well, good for them. Thank God that those investors... (laughs) Thank goodness rich people made out okay in this story. Yeah. Ah. I was worried there for a minute. (laughs) (laughs) It also, I mean, this whole revitalization project and an investment in Buenos Aires stimulated the job market. It was actually very important because of all these downturns that they did put the money into it. Right. It provided $450 million in labor cost and it provided 3,750 jobs per year for 20 years, which is fairly significant. Yeah. So to this day, I mean, I kind of Googled like what's the rate of construction or or what's the amount of construction that's happening in Buenos Aires. And it immediately thought I was job searching in Buenos Aires. It was like, uh-huh. are you an engineer? Do you want to move here? <laughs> <laughs> so I imagine quite the market yeah. in Buenos Aires. Very cool. And yeah, it's it's really the port has really contributed to the success of the city and the country overall has been very pivotal in the development, even though it was 
so difficult <laughs> to get anything built. Yeah. So hard. And you really got to just admire their, their persistence. There you go. But yeah, very interesting. Our first port episode. Thank you so much for suggesting it. Mm-hmm. And I hope you guys learn a bit. And I'm sure a lot of you will come across abandoned ports or revitalized port areas if you like to travel. It is a very common thing in most major cities. So next time you visit one of these places, you'll have a little bit of a scientific and engineering context to put your head around. That's right. You're welcome. So next time we go to somewhere and there's a port, I'm going to be like, John, look at this thing. Remember that thing I taught you? And you're going to be like, no, no, like, no, I don't, Never do. I don't remember it's so many things. <laughs> so I usually write a little subtitle that's just cheeky and for myself in most episodes in my notes, but I haven't written one here, but I think an appropriate one for this episode might be Port of Buenos Aires, the story of how rich people are doing okay. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. <laughs> I can see that. Anyway, thank you so much for sticking with us through this episode. And I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please leave us a rating on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on. Drop us a line through our social media, whether it's with Instagram at Measure to Metric or on Facebook at Measure Metric or on our website, MeasureToMetric.com. Yes. Thanks as always to Astronomic Audio for sound design and audio engineering. They've been a huge, huge help for us getting this podcast out of our mouths and into your ears. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Alex does a very good job making me sound smarter and John sound Dumber. Dumber, yeah. Yeah. It's true. Making me sound more accessible, more like a common man, <laughs> rather than the secret genius that I am. The secret genius. <laughs> the secret genius that I are. <laughs> oh. So thank you so much. Uh, next week, I think it should time out well, but we have a very special episode and interview next week. Yes. For, for next episode. For next episode. Two weeks from now. Yes. So please stay tuned and keep subscribing. Yep. And also, if you listen to the next episode and it really sucks, then it's probably the next one that's going to be good. <laughs> the next, we, we do have something that's genuinely very cool in the works. So. But until then, measure in metrics.